Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So as you can tell, we're back in 1 Corinthians. Um, We spent uh, several weeks going through like chapters 6 and 7, and and I'm grateful by the time we landed on Family Sunday that we're not there anymore, Um, because we had some pretty extensive uh, conversations about um, marriage and singleness, sexual immorality, sorry for that one, that's just what it says, Um, and uh, and, uh, I think I said singleness and divorce. And so we've gone through those things. If you haven't been here in a while, I would encourage you to check out our messages online and catch up. Um, what, we're, what we're moving into now is a new question that has been posed to the Apostle Paul, just like we found before that uh, the church had written him some, some, some questions, written for wisdom and information, and he's replying. So let's look at verse 1 again. And he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So the next question that Paul is tackling, so to speak, is things sacrificed to idols. As we continue to read this chapter, it's made clear that this isn't people, so that's good. This is animals for food. And uh, they are sacrificed inside temples by priests uh, that litter sort of the uh, environment of Corinth. It's very common. So what I want to do is I want to take just a couple minutes to uh, explore some historical background so that way we can just a little bit better understand what exactly Paul is talking about here. So in, in Corinth and other places in the Roman Empire, there are lots of temples and shrines to various gods of their pantheon, such as this one. I have a picture if you want to throw that up there. So this doesn't look like much, but it's real old. Um, this is the temple to Apollo in Corinth, which is still called Corinth in Greece today. Um, and so... Uh, In Paul's time, it was also becoming prevalent to find temples and shrines to the emperor and his family members um, where there would be rituals and activities going on as well. One of the premier activities of these temples was animal sacrifice. And so um, the animals would be brought in by a family and they would be sacrificed and then served up as a centerpiece for a meal. And so the family as well as the priest would come together and eat, and it was open to the public, anybody who wanted to worship, like in this case, Apollo, they could come and they could eat together with this family that had brought animals. Now, uh, it was regular that this would be too much for that family and even their guests, so the leftover meat would be taken by the temple officials and brought to the market and sold. Um, It's important to realize that this was not like an extreme practice. This was not like... like reserved for like the cultic elite and like the really mysterious underground like temple worship of Corinth. This was remarkably commonplace. So much so that if you bought meat at the market, there was a pretty good chance that it came from one of these places. And uh, that's sort of the context of the question that is being asked is, is it okay if we buy and eat this meat? And we get this understanding as we go on through the chapter that There are people in the church that are advocating, sure, go for it. Go eat that meat. And there are even people that we we seem to see advocating not only buying it from the market, but also just going to the temple and eating it. And so this is is for, especially like poor people, this is probably the only way that they would be able to get meat at all, that uh, they either buy it from the market uh, at this temple reduced rate rather than like hiring their own butchers and stuff like that. Or they would just go when it was free 
at a uh, temple ceremony. So knowing this historical context, it may elicit like one or two reactions. Number one, this is inexcusable. <laughs> this seems like a pretty cut and dry issue. Don't do that. That's yucky. That's, that's weird. And we know that there's all kinds of other things that go on in, in these sort of temples to uh, Greek and Roman gods, like we talked about uh, other stuff in weeks past that goes on there when they're worshiping. And the second reaction that you may be tempted to take is that this has nothing to do with us. We don't do these kinds of things, so I don't know why we're, we're tackling this. And I would affirm, absolutely, I think it would be a remarkably indefensible position to say that worshiping an idol is okay. It's not okay. Like, just hear that before we go on. It's not okay to worship idols. Um, and I would say that, that this isn't meant to be an expose. I'm not going to tell you that McDonald's is actually a secret cult temple, and like when you eat there, you're actually paying homage to an ancient false god. That's not what this message is about. And some of you were like, oh, you know, like you were hoping for that sort of message. That's not what you're going to get here. And for you critical readers, your mind may actually go to Acts 15. In Acts 15, this is a landmark passage, especially for us in this room, because this is where the council at Jerusalem decides, what do we do with Gentiles who are coming to Jesus? Some wanted to make it so that way Gentiles, if they are going to come to Jesus, they have to become Jewish first. And so that involves all sorts of ceremonies, all sorts of dietary laws, their entire life being changed so that way they can, they can begin to follow Jesus. Now, they're reasoning through this, and, uh, and James brings forward this. Um, we're going to read verse, starting in verse 19 from Acts 15. It says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them to abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. So we've seen already in the last couple chapters that Paul's taken his aim on fornication. Like that, that hasn't changed. There's no wiggle room on this. But now we find ourselves here, where there's an open conversation about this particular practice. So the question is, what's the difference? And if I could posit a theory, and I think it's a good theory. I'm not, try, I'm not trying to tell you that this is exactly what's going on, but this is, this is the, what my reading shows me. There's no question that the Lord alone is to be worshipped. That's not the question. The question is, what constitutes worshipping an idol? If you have lunch at Shanghai after church today, you may notice they have a little Buddha statue. And I'm not here to scare you into thinking like, have I accidentally been cheating on God by eating Chinese food? We only have one option. I don't understand. <laughs> I know, right? And this, this may sound silly to us, but my goal is neither to trivialize this nor to make you afraid, but to open a conversation and environment where we can figure these things out in a reasonable and safe way. The history helps us see exactly what Paul is referring to and it's actually stemming from the same conversation we've had week after week after week that has to do with the disunity and the discord within the church. This is stemming all the way back to chapter 1 and people dividing into factions and people uh, considering each other lesser or inferior, whatever. And so that is to say this has so much to do with us. And this has so much more to do with beyond meat and those kinds of things. And additionally... This is sort of the prelude to a conversation that will take place over the next two or three chapters, depending on how you read it. And so this is, this is functioning to open up the case that Paul will continue to develop as he goes on. So 
when we return to verse 1, uh, it may be tempting to think that Paul is just going to say, hey, you asked this question, my advice to you, don't do it. But he takes a surprising turn right off the get-go. Look at verse 1 again. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him, him being God. So this is likely what we find here is another one of these slogans that we've talked about in 1 Corinthians, that the church just has these sort of mantras that they repeat to, I don't know, help themselves feel better. It's like a mantra like, follow your heart, or you do you, one of those sort of things. That isn't the Bible, and it's kind of contrary to the Bible, but it's just things that they repeat. So this, we all have knowledge, is like a phrase that they use, like, we, we know better. And what they're trying to say is like, we know better than to be worried about temples and idols, and they, they can't have any lasting spiritual impact on us because we know that they're not true. We know that the Lord is true, so whatever we do and we interact with these sort of things, it doesn't really matter. Now, the way that we... Um, and I say we, the way that I <laughs> uh, use this, this sort of concept is called Christian liberty. Have you ever heard that before? Can you give me like a head nod or anything like that? Nope, nobody knows what that is. Good. Um, Elliot in the back has heard of Christian liberty. Um, so the idea is that since Jesus has set us free from sin, that we are not bound, we, we can't get tripped up in those things again. And some of you are like, is he telling us that that's the way it is? Or, or how? Let, let me explain. This, like a lot of things that are kind of half true, can be a very slippery slope. Because what this has often given way to, especially in modern times, especially in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, this has given way to hyper-grace. And what that is to say is you cast off any sort of sense of morality as religiousness. You cast off any sense of morality as you're denying the spirit his work in your life. And so when somebody tells you, like, I don't know, the Bible says you shouldn't do this, then you're like, oh, that's a religious spirit, brother. You need, to, you need to embrace the liberty that God has given you. And so it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous little, little notch because I do want to affirm God has set us free, that we're no longer bound to sin. We're free to serve and follow Jesus as we were initially designed to do. But there's a lot of milieu that stands in front of us. There's a lot of issues that stand in front of us. So let's get back to what Paul says and how he asks us to deal with this knowledge. He says this pretty brutal thing. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. That word edify means to build up, to encourage. And this is an attack that he's po poised at the Corinthians already. He's attacked their pride, that they think they're so stinking smart. They think that they're so above these things that are, that are, that are causing people to sin but what we find chapter after chapter after chapter is that the majority of them are failing to maintain the basic disciplines and the graces that are supposed to mark a Christian life. So maybe like we'll, we'll find out as we go on that there's no spiritual gift lacking in the church of Corinth. But yet we've already gone through 11 or so chapters of how they don't know how to just be followers of Jesus with one another. So they may be prophesying and praying in tongues and doing all these sort of things, but they're not actually acting like Jesus would have them to act. And so for those of you who have been with us on Tuesday nights, you know that the theme of the last couple chapters in the Gospel of John has been this concept of loving one another. That we've read that a few times already, that Jesus' commandment to us in his farewell discourse towards the end of John is that we would love one another as he loved us. 
And this is the commandment that he leaves us with. And so Paul is attacking their pride that they have some sort of knowledge that usurps love. And saying that what this actually demonstrates, what their pride in their knowledge actually demonstrates, is that they don't know anything. And because of this, they're actually missing what is most important. I like the way uh, Professor N.T. Wright says this in his commentary. He says this, What matters is not your knowledge about this or that, or even about God and the gods. What matters is God's knowledge of you. The way you will be aware of that is by the love you find for this, this true God deep in your own heart and mind. So right here at the very beginning of this new conversation, Paul is already making it clear that this is about so much more than just the food that you eat. This is about so much more than the restaurants you choose to go to, so to speak. But this is still another means that the enemy is sowing discord and disunity within the church. So let's see how we deal with this sort of thing. Let's get back to eating. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on, e or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom, all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, Paul fleshes out the knowledge that he's talking about. He does this really good theology on Jesus, we're going to talk about in a moment. But before that, he, he communicates what it is that their, their knowledge consists of. The knowledge is that most of these idols are absolutely powerless that there's no reality in, what's, what, in them whatsoever, that people are going and just talking to good architecture. They're not talking to anybody. And he even affirms that there are like so-called gods and, and lords of the earth that people are worshiping, but they're nothing compared to the Lord. They're nothing compared to the one true God. This is the knowledge that some of the church in Corinth claim to have. I do want to take a moment and just take a very awesome bunny trail talking about verse 6, because Paul throws it in here, and it's easy to take for granted, but it is extremely powerful and, and should be very encouraging to us this morning. Now, if you guys know this, Paul is Jewish. That didn't necessarily change when he became a follower of Jesus. He just became the right kind of Jewish. Um, and with being Jewish, he was committed to a very clear vision of monotheism, which is to mean that there's only one God. But as a Christian, he has to affirm that Jesus is God. He has to affirm that Jesus is the one true Lord. And so the way that he does this in verse 6 is actually remarkable. So let's read it again. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now to many of us who maybe don't come from a, a, a rigid Jewish background, this just sounds like a very nice confession of the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in Jesus. But it actually carries some pretty profound implications. I like to use this chart from uh, Professor Richard Bachman. You can throw that up, the A, B, C, D. Yeah, there it is. So what happens here is that what Paul has done is he has included in lines A and C the ancient confessionary prayer of the Jewish people called the Shema. If you're familiar, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And this is, they pray this every day, multiple times a day. And so he's included that in this, but he's rearranged it to include Jesus Christ. So if you read that, 
Uh, let's, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 really quick, if you want to throw that up on the screen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we can go back to the chart. But to us there is one God and one Lord. But he includes God the Father and God Jesus. And then he uses the principal function of the deity, which is creation, which is lines B and D. From whom are all things, and we for him, and through whom are all things, and we through him. Isn't that cool? That, like, this is something that can be easily taken for granted, but Paul is just taking on everybody. He's taking on the Gentiles who worship lots of gods, and then he's taking on the Jews who say that Jesus isn't God, and he's saying, actually, no to both, that this is, this is the true identity of what God is really like. So that was for free. <laughs> this is very good news. But here in chapter 8, Paul is ultimately concerned with what you do with this kind of knowledge. It's important that you have this kind of knowledge, but what you do with this knowledge will change because knowledge by itself just makes you arrogant. Has any, let's see who's, who's honest in the room. Is anybody ever arrogant? I am raising my hand. I'm not just showing you how to raise your hand. I am raising my hand. I, I sort of led you in that one. I just said you had to be honest, but it, it happens. It's an easy thing to do. Let's look at verse 7. He says this, however, not all men have this knowledge. Again, the knowledge that idols have no reality in them. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now this is interesting, because Paul isn't talking about unbelieving people. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to genuine followers of Jesus. And he's saying that um, they don't understand who is really God. They don't understand these sort of things. And we said it before that the church in Corinth is, is very young in their faith. This is a first-generation church. That there were likely not people whose parents were Christians and raised them in, in faith. This is very new to them. And they're working, working it out as the first-ever Christians in their city. Now, among this group, there are some that were, uh, have taken their freedom from idols with great liberty, that they are the ones eating in the temple, they're buying the meat, they have no problem. Others don't trust anything having to do with the idols, and they're like, I guess I just won't eat meat ever again because I can't be sure that it's not contaminated. Now, as we go on, we'll see that Paul refers to that second group as peoples with weak conscience, and that just stings, doesn't it? Because I'm generally in this category, you guys. <laughs> I'm generally in the, the category that Paul says, you have weak faith. But as we go far, it, it, it would be careful, or it would be careful. If we are not careful, when we go this, this far, we can be tempted to already be offended with the Holy Spirit who inspired these words. We can be tempted to think that Paul is actually putting down those who he calls weak. And maybe your Bible says something else. But I think the, the, the understanding is there that these are people who don't have understanding versus the people who do have understanding. And it's possible that some of you are still looking at this like, I still don't see what this has to do with us. <laughs> Let me offer one brief illustration, and hopefully this can help us engage a little bit more clearly. We all come to Jesus in the same way. We're all sinners, and we are saved from God's wrath by God's grace. That's the only way you can come to God. That's the only way you can be saved. But something is left in the wake. 
when you're saved, no matter where you come from, and that is your conscience. Some of us will have our conscience, consciences continually sanctified, and some of us struggle with that process for a long time. The example I want to use to illustrate this is social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever other platforms you prefer. Let's say in the church today, there is someone who gets saved, who gets baptized, who gets confirmed in the church, and we praise God, and they take a good long look at their Facebook, and they're like, you know what, i got to stop following these friends who, who tempt me to do sinful stuff, but I'm going to use social media as a platform for entertainment, for keeping up with friends. I'm going to post things that reflect myself as a new creation, and we're going to go on. Right next to them is another dear brother or sister in the faith that sees social media as a breeding ground of evil. That this is a factory of idols, that there's all kinds of perversion and temptation and bullying and misinformation, and they delete all presence of themselves online. Now, let's say these folks go to Deeper Project together. They sit next to each other, and during dinner, they have encouraging conversations. And as tense things usually do, this subject comes up. Both of them are aghast, like, what are you talking about? Like, why, why are you taking this so severely? Please don't answer this question out loud or with your, your faces. Who is right? Just ponder that for a moment. Because in a pure sense, neither one of them. But in another sense, both of them. Because the one who engages with social media in a healthy way may consider themselves evolved. Like, I, I get it. Uh, like, social media can't make me a sinner. I just have to interact with it correctly. The one who abstains altogether may think, how could they hate Jesus like this? And, and deny themselves, uh, like, just leave an open door to the enemy this way. So do one of these guys get to inflict their convictions on the other guy? I chose social media as an example because I think it's genuinely relevant. I think that does come up from time to time. But also it's not as inflammatory as other examples I could have chosen that occupy the same space. We'll get to in a moment. If we ponder this for a moment, we can probably arrive at, hopefully we can arrive at a lot of things that are like this. That maybe we feel very strongly about, or, or maybe for the sake of our, our peace, we know somebody who feels really strongly about something. We just don't get it. You know? Like, why is that so important to you? That this, this is something that you're willing to divide and fight over. Okay. This is, this is a, a great time for a disclaimer. Because if this is your first time here, you may be thinking, like, this place sounds awesome. Listen to the last couple weeks. Sin is sin. There are things that are clearly, clearly defined in the scriptures as sin. And we haven't shied away from that going through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is very confrontational in that regard. That there are things that Paul is like, this has no place in the life of the believer. And we've had to, we've had to grapple with that very seriously. Hence, I mean, if you read chapters 5, 6, and 7, you, you, you find yourself in that place. Since it's Family Sunday, I won't say what those things are, but you can figure it out. I don't want like a, like a lot of emails about like awkward conversations you had to have on the way home. Um, there are things that will always be bad. 
I, I say that with, with the utmost conviction. There are things that will always be bad that you cannot do in faith, that you should not do as a follower of Jesus. But there's also a proverbial junk drawer full of other examples that we need to learn about how to navigate in love. The point is that we don't create laws where God didn't create laws. But instead, we learn how to follow Jesus together. So let's keep looking. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to... Do- Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, notice that wording. Like, he's not talking to the weak conscience people. He's talking to the people who apparently have understanding. He's like, you're not better by going and exercising your liberty. Understand that. And it's important, uh, this is an important point for the weak and the arrogant in Corinth. And here, uh, the real issue isn't food in either direction, good or bad. There may be some of you that are very firm in your perspectives and your convictions and are ready to tell me already what's what after this. But consider everything that we've already talked about. I'm not here to tell you, like, go forth and sin a whole bunch. Like, that's not what I'm here to tell you. What we're after, what Open Door Church, what the Church of Jesus Christ at large is after is love and unity within the church based around Jesus. Let me say that again so it's clear. We're not after love and unity for the sake of love and unity. Love and unity for the sake of love and unity is a lie. Because something has to be true and something has to be false. If we just try and synchronize everything and synergize everything, we are walking contradictions. But we want love and unity based on Christ, who is our author, who is our perfecter. He's our sustainer. He's the one who is the master, not me, not you, not the most righteous person you know. Jesus is the master. So this includes confronting blatant sin. Love and unity based around Jesus includes confronting sin. It also includes learning how to peacefully disagree. So let's keep rolling. Verse 9. I'm going to take a drink of coffee. But I didn't slurp. Did you notice that? So it's not like a big loud noise in the microphone. But take care with this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. That weak person is the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Yikes. Holy moly. This is the core of the passage here, you guys. The instruction here is not to grab the immature person and be like, grow up. Get better. You're not supposed to force somebody to violate their convictions for the sake of quote-unquote liberty. The instruction of the Lord is consider one another ahead of ourselves. If you have liberty, be humble. Love your brother because we find ourselves in this strange interchange that is confusing and difficult, especially, like I said, I generally fall into the weak category. I generally fall into like, oh, how could you do this? I was, I was a youth pastor when crop tops became 
popular. And I was like, no, Satan, get that out of my church. You know, it's like, how, how, how are you trying to defy God's will in this place? It's a, it's a shirt, you guys. <clears throat> it's a shirt, you know. We find ourselves at this strange interchange where sin for one person may not be sin for another person. That's a scary thing. The big point is here that in your liberty, you can cause someone else to sin. That it's not just about you. It's not just about like, brother, I know my freedom in Christ. I can, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and misuse Bible verses whenever I want to. There's a point where your liberty can cause someone else to sin. So let's, let's look at an elephant in the room. Are you ready for this? Let's talk about alcohol. I, on the forefront, I do not drink. I, I don't drink when I'm with family. I don't drink when I'm on vacation. I don't drink at all. So, again, just hear that before I say what I'm going to say. There are clear instructions in the scripture that drunkenness is sin. To be out of your mind, to be inebriated is sin. But within the culture of the ancient Near East, drinking wine was a part of everyday life and even a part of ritual, like religious ceremonies. Fast forward to today, and we can see, maybe even in this church, people who casually enjoy a glass of wine with dinner, and they are not in sin. We can also see people in this church who, if they were to go to a bar ever or even places that emphasize alcohol really heavily, their conscience would be defiled and they would be in sin. That this is a monolithic, fearful temptation. Again, our goal is not to create laws where God does not create laws or to force people to violate their conscience. The instruction here is that if you are a Christian who has this liberty and you can enjoy alcohol recreationally and safely... If you're, if you're hanging out at the bar and your friend who is struggling in this sees you, that may cause them to be confused and led astray. And we have to accept responsibility for something like that. Because Paul said we had to accept responsibility for something like that. When they come over to your house and you try to be like, come on, that's just your religious attitude, man. You got you to gotta get with the times, you know. Things, are, things have changed. You have to consider how you may confuse and tempt people who are weaker than you. And I would also posit here, you're probably not as strong as you think you are. So just check that at the door. And there's a real possibility, especially in this example, but we can import other examples that we found disagreements within the church. There's a real possibility that the person who struggles with this in their conscience has been affected by the abuses of it, whether in their own life or in other people's lives around them. So we have to be patient and loving to one another. But I, I want to say, for those of you who are like, yeah, you got to stop doing those things that I don't like, you know? The other side of the argument is also true, that the person who cannot understand how you could do something that God said you could do without being a sinner, they don't get to just boss around everybody else. We've had major divides in churches over history based on things that God never commanded. Before anger and aggression, or God forbid, division, we need to open up honest conversations and figure this out together. Again, this is about more than food, or social media, or booze. Booze sounds so negative when I say it like that. Well, there you go. There you go. 
So at this point, it's possible for me to be offended because like I said, I'm generally in this weak conscience category that I don't understand how people can do the things that they do, whatever. But that kind of proves Paul's point, doesn't it? That knowledge makes arrogant and how easily pride and even selfishness can creep its tendrils around this ship as we're trying to go into God's will. Let's look at a very similar conversation that Paul breached with another group of people. We're going to be in Romans chapter 14. Here specifically, Paul is dealing with two major people groups that are the Jews and the non-Jews. And they're having problems in Rome, you guys, like Jews and non-Jews have every day all over the world. And so this particular subject that Paul is breaching here is the food that they eat, that Jewish people who follow Jesus have these dietary laws that they take very seriously. And Gentiles are like, that's dumb. Why would you do that? Have you ever had bacon? This is whack. Um, and, and we can joke about it now because we don't really confront these things as often as, as they did. But the reality is this is causing a major rift in the church, so much so that Paul spends a lot of time talking about it. Let's start in verse 13 of Romans 14. The apostle says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. That's two things. That's two different things. Don't judge one another, and also don't cause each other to stumble. If you can see that from both sides, these are both groups of people that we've been talking about, and Paul is taking on both of them at the same time. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Good gravy. What a high call for you to be a follower of Jesus. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. So we're, we've, we've changed the camera angle now. We're, now we're looking at those with, with knowledge, so to speak. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he, who is, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself for what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Because, it, because his eating is not from faith. And look at this. Whatever is not from faith is sin. This is a powerful expansion on this conversation. Because what the Spirit is saying is, don't condemn yourself for anything because you're free in Christ Jesus. But also, don't let love be sullied for the sake of your sense of liberty. Paul finishes with a profound statement in 1 Corinthians 8. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. To recap, this is not about meat. <laughs> so if you're thinking like, wow, Adam's preaching a 
sermon on vegetarianism? I don't, I don't understand. No, it's about loving one another as Christ loved us. It's about considering each other's hearts before God. And guys, this weighs heavy against those who have liberty. And I hope that as we link arms and as we go forward together, that we are able to see freedom, that we're able to understand from each other's perspectives. But also, if something in my life is causing you to stumble, I don't want to ever do it again. That includes the silly and stupid things, too. If you've noticed, that's 13 verses. This is not comprehensive to like run through like a schematic for every single situation. What we need to do is realize these situations exist and then be able to confront them. Because these things, these things divide churches a lot. These sort of preferential things divide churches a lot. I'll use another silly example. I used to go to youth group when I first got saved at a church and uh, I started serving on the worship team at my church and playing music and stuff. And I was like, oh, man, we should do worship at youth group because the church that we met in on Sunday mornings didn't have a building, so we used another church's building. And the youth pastors was like, oh, nope, we can't do that. And I was like, we can't, like, sing worship songs? That doesn't make any sense. The building that we were meeting in was a church of Christ. And they believe, because of a dear theological conviction, that if you use instruments in your praise to God, that you're glorifying yourself and you're drawing attention to yourself. And as, as the, the wise, like, trail-tested 15-year-old I was, I was like, that's baloney. That's so dumb. Like, music is rad. They should get, they should, like, get good, you know? Like, I don't understand why they would be so dumb about stuff like that. And, and I, maybe my youth pastor used passages like this to, to shepherd me and lead me into not just being a hateful wretch. But it's easy for us to do this either direction. And I want to be clear, again, in case you missed it, that sin is a real issue. And sin poisons and corrupts churches really often. And we have a great adversary who wants to tempt us and wants to lead us astray. And so we want to resist him. And we want to seek the things that are good and pure and righteous. But I also think that it's good to divide over some things. If we're disagreeing about the person of Jesus and we're in very stalwart positions and we deny the essential things about Christ, we call those creedal issues, things that are like, this is what it means to be a Christian is you believe these sort of things. If we're disagreeing about those sort of things, then we should probably, we should probably fight about that. But I want to I open up the, the, the concept for consideration that most of these things that we fight about are not those things. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.